the project. Kuwait. Learn. Hey, everybody. In this episode, we sit down with Fatma Katfan, who discusses and debunks some of our ideas and thoughts, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Me and her get into a nice little debate, actually. Well, I say little. It was a long one. But it was a good debate. It was very clean, and it came from two different perspectives. And I have to say, her perspective on the whole topic, it's different from what we hear on a day-to-day basis, especially when we're in the training game and when they're the physical fitness game. It's good to bring someone from outside of our realm. And she talks a lot about that today, and she discusses a lot of poor habits we may have or may not have. And I guess it really comes back down to something we always say on the show is it depends. Yeah. 100%. So it was really, really refreshing to, to hear her perspective and just to hear her understanding of actually some of the behaviors that people are exhibiting on a daily basis that actually might be either putting others down or some positive behaviors that are either bringing people up as well, especially in regards to eating disorders. It was a great psychology segment, to be honest with you, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people out there, especially the trainers, I think you guys will enjoy this the most because it may give you a different way of attacking things with your clients and actually solving some of the problems behind the mental issues that may occur. And at the end of the day, mental health is a big part of the Project Kuwait because it's something that isn't talked about in our society enough. And, you know, she brings it from, she brings a lot of perspectives that I blew me away, to be honest with you. Exactly. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. As always, if there's anything that we miss or any feedback that you can give us, then hit us up on a DM. All this and more in today's episode. You, I knew you were yeah, going to do that. I, I always do it. I always do it. He always, always, we always literally points at me to I know, I know. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it's one of our things. That, like it's, it's turned into one of the things lately. We try and start the show off on a good note. Fatma Ghatfan, drama therapist. So, I mean, I can't even describe any of this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and about yourself? Sure. It's good to be on the show. My name is Fatma Ghatfan. A drama therapist is basically someone who combines psychology with the creative arts specifically the theater arts. And what that looks like is our roots are in psychology and therapy and everything we know about the counseling world. But then instead of just talking to a client about an issue, what I try to do is use art, poetry, movement, storytelling, role play to get to the issue a lot faster. And what that looks like in session Sometimes it starts off looking like counseling because you need to get to know people. It's not like people walk through my office and I'm like, okay, great. Now we're putting on a play. It's a lot slower than that. There's um, warm-ups, basically, both cognitive and body-based warm-ups. And then as needed, we'll weave in more creative techniques to address an issue. And I work with all ages. I mean, I kind of started working with even a wider age group from little kids to people all the way up to 80 I think that was one of the oldest people I worked with. But right now... That's intense, though. Yeah, That's it's really cool. That's intense working with an 80-year-old client. That's, it was um, really cool. It was actually a group called Barrier Free Theater, okay. where it's community-based and a group of students from my university come together with people with all sorts of abilities, all ages, all sizes. And then we put on an original musical every year. And that's where we see this really cool age range where our group, our acting group has people as young as 17, 18 sign up and as old as 80 and over. So yeah, what I was saying is like I started out with a really wide age range and now I tend to mostly work with adolescents and adults. So how'd you get into it? Because 
when we went to school together, we went to AUK. Yeah, disclaimer. Yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> we went to the American University of Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Just I'm pro AUK, so I got to give them a shout out. <laughs> yeah, good professors <laughs> over there. I don't remember you in the psychology like classes and stuff because I was a psych minor. I think yeah. I took every single psychology class. If there was a major, I probably would have majored in psych mm-hmm. just because it was something that really, you know, that was something I was interested in. I loved it. So where was the turning point? Just out of curiosity. No, you're right. Like psychology was not super on my radar when I was at AUK. I started out in anthropology and English literature. And I Connerly think... Connerly Casey? Yes. Connerly <laughs> was my major professor. She was awesome. Shout out to Connerly. She yeah. was an awesome professor. Okay. We watched, um, what was that movie we watched in her class? And it was like, all right... It was such. It was like an American classroom setting mm-hmm. because we were watching a movie that had violence, that had drugs, that mm-hmm. had you know sex, everything in it, and it was a part of the learning process. It was like a drugs, people, and problems class, mm-hmm. which she was. You know how taboo it was at the time, mm-hmm. and you know she was a great professor. Yeah. yeah, and so I I started out in anthropology and English literature with like this interest in the humanities and the social sciences. But also my real passion was theater. I was told over and over again from people all around me, oh, yeah, but theater is not like a thing. You're not going to make a living going into theater. And it was hard at the time. The kind of theater I wanted to do wasn't really thriving in Kuwait. And so, you know, went into the social sciences. Theater was my hobby until about five years after my graduation or four years, I discovered drama therapy through a documentary called 12 Angry Lebanese, where a drama therapist went into the prisons of Lebanon and used theater to address legal issues, social issues, and basically helped helped these men who were really neglected by society reconnect with their families. And she got some of the laws turned around through through theater. And that opened my eyes that theater can do so much more than entertain. I always knew that, but I just didn't know how. How can theater do more than entertain people? And that's how I came to drama therapy. Wow, I'm, bl- I'm blown away by that. <laughs> I'm really blown away by <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't know anything about therapy. You know, I, I knew what the movies told us, but... Wow. <laughs> Liam's still sitting here. He's kind of like, <laughs> he's like, I never, uh, I, I didn't know that you could do all of that through, you know, through acting. Like, mm-hmm. I, and, you know, when you talk about therapeutic resources, um, we all know working out or exercising mm-hmm. could be therapeutic. I know for myself personally, yes. that's how I work out my demons. You yeah. Know, that's how I work. You know, that's... Some of my driving force always is, you know, if I have a really bad day or if something's going on in my life or there's a psychological issue that I haven't dealt with, part of what I do is I work, work it, work it out, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, Mahdi, I like that you said it's exercise can be therapeutic because you're right. It can be therapeutic, but it's not therapy. And sometimes the word therapy gets thrown around. But like doing an awesome workout is not a substitute to working on my relationship with you know, as a sibling. Yeah. It's displacement at the end of the day. Right. You're displacing your anger. Like for me, I'd hit a punching bag, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm angry at something, but that's just displacement. It's going to show up somewhere yeah. else. Right. And it, or, it, it's good. You know, it gets adrenaline pumping. It, people can set goals and feel motivated and it's really good for their overall psychological health and well-being. However, they may not have actually resolved that issue. And so it's therapeutic because it can feel good. But it is not therapy. And I I make that distinction because now, like I said, the word therapy gets thrown around and I hear people say shopping therapy or retail therapy. (laughs) Yeah, it actually sometimes feels really therapeutic to go spend money and buy someone a gift. But is it therapy? It is not. But here, when we say the creative arts as therapy, like drama therapy, art therapy, music therapy... Yes, those are modalities where people have gone to school and studied how do I use music in order to resolve people's 
psychological issues, their mental, how do I help their mental health through art? And so art can be therapeutic if I'm sitting at home and painting, or it can be art therapy if I'm sitting with someone who's trained to help me address my goals and make changes in my life. Oh, that's amazing. So instead of helping instead of solving the symptoms of the problem you're actually going to the root cause exactly. of the problem through that modality that's 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 mm-hmm. i mean that's amazing like because yeah. that's you know that goes into like eating disorders which yes. we see hugely amongst the fitness crowd right liam I mean, yeah for sure like i mean in more <laughs> ways than you could possibly count like i mean yeah. obviously we have the like kind of the eating disorders that you kind of think kind of very debilitating, so it might be like anorexia or bulimia or anything like that. But then also you have like even just a very subtle eating disorders where you're kind of going, oh, I ate this huge meal and so I have to go work out. Mm. Like I have to go and punish the myself guild to work go and out. work out. The yeah. guild workout. Um, or you have the, actually, I had a, a great workout, so now I'm going to go and eat 12 cookies because mm-hmm. I can. Like So even those like very subtle kind of yeah. ways of like kind of viewing food unhealthily, as it were, mm-hmm. like in, yeah. in a mental aspect, mm-hmm. um, like we see it probably in everyone yeah. in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Liam, what you're talking about is the difference between first, like if you think of it as a spectrum, on one end, we have like intuitive eating, which looks like just honoring my hunger and fullness cues, having a very diet, not feeling terrible about food choices or my relationship with food and my body. And then as we slide down the spectrum, first we get into kind of disordered eating, not an eating disorder, but disordered eating, where this is what you talked about, like feeling guilty or exercising in order to earn a meal, like the whole burn and earn. The guilt comes in. I need to work this off. And then as we slide down the spectrum, that's when we fall into what are now diagnostic or diagnosable eating disorders. So anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, so on and so forth. But what you're saying, and this is what I see too, is most people fall in the middle of the spectrum where they have some kind of disordered eating behavior, one or two, and like they can't help it. We can't help it. We live in this culture where so much of what we do and so much of the way we behave around food is comes at us from so many different different places, all these messages of like, well, you need to maintain your body. You need to do this. You must, you should, you shouldn't. So yeah, tell me more about like what you guys see. So I was really interested when you've been saying that as into kind of on that spectrum, like where is the definition of healthy? Mm. Like, so like kind of what is okay? What's not? Is it okay to be kind of around the middle? Is it okay to have like some, some characteristics and aspects of disordered eating? Are there ones which are more okay than others? Like, so for the listeners, I know they're probably thinking inside and they're kind of going, actually, I do that or mm-hmm. I do this. And they're probably wondering, is there something wrong with me if I'm doing that? So are you able to kind of speak a little bit as to like the, how dangerous or potentially not dangerous, but how uh, kind of, is there a spectrum inside that spectrum where healthy lies? Mm-hmm. For me, like you said the word dangerous and then you backed off, but I think eating disorders and the spectrum can be really dangerous. Like we know that anorexia nervosa is the leading cause of death within all the mental health illnesses and disorders. I find I find that I said that in a weird way. Hold on. So out of all the mental disorders, anorexia nervosa and eating disorders are the most dangerous. And so when people fall into that spectrum of like maybe they're doing one or two behaviors, it's dangerous in case they continue to slip. Because what happens when we're not feeding ourselves 
uh, or fueling our bodies or our relationship with ourselves is really tense is with time, our organs start to shut down if we're not giving our organs and our body enough fuel. Yeah, I had a very close friend of mine when I was growing up in the States. I'm not going to mention her name, mm -hmm. but we were very close. I mean, we were extremely close and I'm probably going to tag her in this episode. And she battled anorexia mm -hmm. really badly. And I remember there was a specific time where we were in the car and we were driving and we passed like a restaurant. She goes, I need a salad. That's the only thing I can eat. I can only have salads. And we were like, dude, just get a salad from McDonald's. And she was like, no, no, I just need that. And it was this this fixation on it. Mm -hmm. And none of us as her friends realized how bad it was because she was, you know, she was eating ice cubes uh, with flavored water mm -hmm. and to substitute for food. And it was just, it got so bad that I think her kidneys shut down or something mm -hmm. like that. And she was in the hospital for a while and she literally almost died. Yeah. And to see her fight back after that, I think it was just such an inspirational story that I saw. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, it was so big because it was so, it's so difficult mentally, mm -hmm. especially anorexia. It is so difficult mentally. And she withered away to nothing. And none of us, like none of us as her friends realized it. That was a scary thing right. too. So right. Yeah, we think that we're going to spot eating disorders by the way somebody looks, but we know that's a myth now. Eating disorders don't have a look. People can be uh, malnourished. People can be struggling or living with anorexia nervosa, bulimia, even binge eating disorder. And there's no size marker. It's not like, well, I'm going to wait for somebody to be completely emaciated, then I know. Well, we don't because it's a set of behaviors and thoughts. And people of any weight and size can, can be trapped in that. And it goes back to, you know, you're speaking about this friend and your friend probably didn't start that extreme and the eating disorder was not that severe at the beginning. What happens is it may start with a behavior that was like highly applauded by people around us. For example, someone coming in and saying, hey, guys, guess what? Like I cut out soda. Yeah, soda is full of crap, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's definitely full of crap. <laughs> it's, it's not good for your teeth. Yep. We, we know it has a lot of sugar. And so what we do is we jump on that and we applaud the behavior because we're like, great. Well, then usually what happens is people eliminate something else because they felt good. And then someone says, hey, I started exercising. And that's on its own. That's a behavior that we like because it has positive consequences. So we start applauding the person. We say, great, you're exercising. You're going on more walks. But each behavior can now slip into sort of a disordered behavior when it's not enough on its own. and. Where I think of like intuitive eating versus all this disordered behaviors is usually teaching people to ask, well, why did I make this choice? How is it affecting me and my social life? Because in Kuwait, where I think I see a backlash right now against people being really connected to their families. So people are like, I don't care what my family says. I'm doing this for me. I want to take care of my body. But social connections are really significant to one's mental health and well-being. And so maybe you're prioritizing your own health and well-being, but you're slowly but surely pulling away from other aspects of, you know, friendships, relationships with others, you not being able to eat the meal I'm eating and you having to plan ahead that, well, you know, I need to eat my food at home. It's kind of disordered because food brings people together. And we, as a culture, we eat together, we share meals, we share creativity through food. We, it's a, you know, an act of love and kindness and generosity. And so I feel like I'm meandering here, but the point is intuitive eating or honoring one's cues to exercise, to move, to eat, 
is where I would say we want to be as close as close as we can to that end of the spectrum. And if we find ourselves slipping into somewhat disordered thoughts and behaviors, just noticing, thinking, well, huh, where is this coming from? Why am I suddenly feeling terrible because I missed one workout? And questioning that and being super curious because, again, we're getting these messages, we're bombarded from all over the place, and it makes sense that we may act on these thoughts and behaviors. Sorry, uh, just real quick. Yeah. Um, so what's the kind of difference between disordered eating mm-hmm. and making like a conscious choice? So, for example, like you said, the importance of eating with friends and kind of like a time of togetherness, like mm-hmm. and especially in this region, that's kind of a lot of family time as well. Like yes. especially you could take like Ramadan and things like that, those kind of times. What's the difference between kind of getting to that kind of family event and actually the family might have bought a whole load of unhealthy food, what we mm-hmm. would think kind of generally is unhealthy food. And the person is then going, actually, like, I don't really want to eat this. And so I'm going to make the choice because actually my family constantly pressure me to eat at the same time as them. And I don't really want to make those, that bad choice. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. that, is that an example of a incorrect choice because they're taking themselves out of that situation so they don't make a bad nutrition choice? Mm-hmm. Or is it kind of disordered eating because they're actually not then engaging in that kind of that family tradition of spending time yeah. together and eating at the same time? Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. It's an excellent question because it gets into like several points I wanted to address anyway. So number one, diet culture. And then I think we need to take some time to define diet culture later. So remind me if I don't get to it. But diet culture teaches us to label food. Good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, junk, crap. I even said it earlier, you know, I said soda is full of crap. Yes, it is. And, and so what? Yes, some food is quote unquote thought of as unhealthy. And so what? Because once we start thinking a food is good versus bad, we attach some sort of morality to it. Like if I say, well, I only eat clean. What is the opposite of clean? Dirty. Right. What am I implying if I eat clean and you don't make my choices? Even though I might not consciously say it, even though I know better, even though I'm in, you know, I think like I like to think of myself as compassionate and kind. However, if I start thinking that I make good choices and I make clean choices in my head, the polar opposite now is huh, kind of judging your choices, even though I don't mean to, even though I know better. So number one, what I teach people and this movement teaches people is not to label food as good or bad. However, all food is not equal. Not all food has the same nutritious value. So what happens if I'm invited to a family gathering and the food there may not be satisfying for me nutritionally? So you you mentioned Ramadan, you said? Yeah, Yeah. as an example, yeah. So, you know, if we think of like a typical meal during Ramadan, there's a lot of fried food, there's a lot of sweets, yeah. A lot Kanafa. of sweet foods, kanafa, baklava, al-gamat. Teshriba. is a big one. <laughs> right? So all this food and the person comes in and they're like, well, I'm trying to honor myself and do better for myself. And now, well, I can't sit with you because <laughs> you're, not, you're not making choices that align with my value system. And I try to look at it very neutrally. Number one, why do we think that food is on the table in the first place? Chances are that food... It all sounds carb heavy to me with a lot of sugars. It's food that the body can very quickly digest and take what it needs. So that was like, I think, the very purpose of most of the foods we find around the table. Now, do we need other kinds of foods? Yes, we do. Just eating food that my body can digest very quickly and get a lot of energy from very quickly is probably not great in the long term. 
So yeah, my body might need something that's fried or sweet, but my body probably also needs its proteins and vitamins and all the other good stuff that the person coming to the table is thinking, oh my gosh, I don't see something that feels good to me. So number one, understanding where that the food choice comes from so that I can make an informed decision and not such a highly charged emotional decision of like, oh, that food is bad and I eat good and I eat clean and this is not clean. So it comes more of a, from a neutral place of like, huh, this is good for my body, but my body right now needs something in addition to this. It could start out with adding instead of taking away. And so what people tend to want to do is remove themselves from the situation or remove all foods from the situation. But if your family is used to making X, Y, and Z, why don't you bring one or two dishes that you can contribute to the family and say, you know, I like to add this when I break my fast. I like to start with this. So I like to start with that. So there's no food judgment. You can try their food. They can try what you brought, but there's not a big separation. And it's not like, like their food is not going to attack you. And this is what yeah. tends to happen. People are like, ah, oh, bad food, fear, fear foods, but actually, I think dangerous. I, the problem I, th- I see a lot and kind of feedback from my clients I get a lot is actually it's not the food that's necessarily attacking them. It's like maybe the family members. It's the, yeah, yes. it's, it's, it's so, my grandmother. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> my it's, it's yeah. the grandmas. Yeah. It's the kind of like yeah. the, the elders who maybe yep. prepared the food who have taken the time to they see it as it's very ingrained in, in themselves to be sharing their yes. food with their younger family members or whoever yeah. is kind of trying to make this better decision. And I hear it a lot that they're kind of like, no, like I did this, you're in my house, you have to, you should eat, like you should mm-hmm. eat, why are you not eating? Like I don't care that you brought your vegan, gluten-free, yeah. whatever, yeah. brownies. I don't want that because I, I prepared this for you. Yeah. And so I think that's what I find, uh, again, feedback from clients and actually had it myself as well before. I've tried to add and bring like a dish that I even even if I knew no one else wanted it I'd be like mm-hmm. okay I'll, I know that because yeah. I want to sit with my, with my friends or my family yeah. but then actually like you're coming under attack and it might be kind of like you feeling like actually I don't really feel welcome here anymore mm-hmm. because and so that happens one time and maybe the next time they go well I'm just not going to go because yeah. it's way easier and so yeah I think that's kind of definitely something some that some grandparents yeah. in our culture find it as an insult yeah, yeah. I know yeah. I got stared down when I brought yeah. my own food but then it turned into people were eating my own food you right. know people were eating the dish that I brought because it was you know it was like chicken and like you know some vegetables and whatever and they're like oh this is good this is good Mm -hmm. to break my fast with and you know i always kind of you guys are right because even liam you said that you know i brought something better and there is judgment even though we're so subtle what we're sending to these people who invited us over is like hey you guys are old school your food is not good enough so it's such a subtle way to send our message or this like this belief system of like food needs to be a certain way And it can be insulting. Like I think about it, if I invite people over and I make a variety of dishes and someone comes in with their own food, that makes me question my choices. That's probably going to make me on some level think, huh, so they think they're better than me. Not to say some people have dietary restrictions for medical reasons, like they literally cannot touch anything with gluten or, you know, they have a liver function, so their food needs to be different. That said, if somebody just brings food because they can't eat what I prepared. And literally I've invited them over once. It's kind of insulting and hurtful. Now I can deal with my emotions because I've also looked at a relationship with food in our body, but most people will not find that to be uh, very kind. And what tends to happen is each party gets stuck in their way of thinking. So like, what are you saying? Our food is not good enough. I've prepared this for you. One meal is not going to kill you and all this extreme thinking. 
Whereas the person here is saying, yeah, I can't eat that. I can't put that in my body. And really one layer beneath that is it's not clean. It's not is good. Is it can't or is it like they don't want to? So mm-hmm. that's where I'm saying is where does the healthy choice yes. lie mentally? Yeah. Because I mean, obviously we, we know where the healthy choice lies nutritionally, but then where does the healthy choice lie mentally? Because actually they're saying, hey, I'm really happy with the fact that I don't want to eat the food that you've prepared. And like, if you're cool with it, then I'm cool with it. Like I'm happy yeah. to sit here and socialize with you, but I'm just going to make this choice for myself. Like, yes, I may think that this is a cleaner or better choice or whatever, but also it could be even if we could even swap the roles around and say someone's prepared a super healthy buffet mm-hmm. and they go, actually, you know what? I just wanted a cookie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and so they brought a cookie <laughs> with them. And then I think actually the problem is, is that if it was the other way around, everyone would just be like, cool, you have your cookie, but like all of this is available. And so like, I'm just trying to think about where, yeah. where does the fault lie? Yeah. Is it with kind of... The like, if we're in this example, is it with the people who are trying to prepare the food, or with the, yeah. is it with the choice of the individual? Because, like, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, it's it's very much up to the individual, and if they're making the choice for the right reasons, they're going, okay, hey, this is just what I like to do, mm-hmm. and I'm making the effort to come and turn up to this family event or social gathering, and I would like to be here, but I've just made this choice for my nutrition because mm-hmm. that's my choice. Yeah. I don't necess- I understand where you're coming from with regards to thinking, okay, like if you're making a choice that you're making clean food, you're mm-hmm. kind of subconsciously thinking that other food is dirty. But then I don't really personally understand the difference between like what, whether that's a bad thing or not. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 You know, when the first part of the question was, is it they can't do it or they choose not to? Yeah. So most social gatherings are not going to be every single day of your life, every single meal, right? So even Ramadan, even if you were to have 30 meals with friends, that's not your entire life. So when someone gets to the point where they cannot be flexible with their eating, they can't sit around and have a meal with people that doesn't follow their guidelines in their head, I find that to be disordered. Yeah. Um, That said, There are times for religious reasons where there are rules that you can't bend. So, for example, if someone does not consume pork, you know, that rule is going to hold fast wherever they go. And people tend to understand. People don't tend to get emotionally charged if you let them know, hey, I can have anything you prepare. I just don't. I can't eat pork for religious reasons. But when when I come in with these guidelines I've put in my mind, which are stemming from a place of, and we haven't even touched on this yet, but a place of chasing a thin ideal or chasing a certain body size and shape for whatever reason. And I expect people to like bond with me without, while saying, you know, I'm not going to join you. I can't, I can't do this. I can't, or I won't. Sorry, this was the difference. Like I choose not to. That's when the emotional tension comes in. And you're right. We can reverse the roles. Let's say I've prepared all these salads and grilled foods and foods that I, in my mind, find to be good or better. And someone comes along with cookies. If I was a flexible eater, I'd be like, sure, cookies sound good. I can have cookies today. If I was rigid in my thinking, kind of now we're leaning toward orthorexia, this unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. And I say, "Uh uh-uh, no cookies. Why'd you bring cookies to my party? I made protein balls that are like refined sugar free. Then I'm definitely on the end of like judgment and disordered eating. And this is where this stuff affects social relationships because someone can live very happy 
with their food choices and eat at home all the time. But then what is it doing to their social connections? And I guess the, the problem would be, sorry, just before no, I forget what yeah. you said, you said I can have cookies today. Yes. So like, but with the social kind of calendar, like it's like almost every day you could be going out with friends and kind of making different yeah. choices. So that if it's kind of like, okay, I can have cookies today. Firstly, obviously you're then kind of thinking, okay, but I can't have cookies tomorrow, which then I'm mm-hmm. kind of thinking, okay, is that then an example of disordered eating mm-hmm. again as well? But then also, what if they had cookies yesterday? Mm-hmm. And then they're going, hey, actually, I can't really have cookies today because I had it yesterday. And yes. if I'm on this flexible idea, yeah. also I need to be making sure that I'm not just cookie, choosing cookies every day because I like to. Yeah. I kind of have to go, actually, sometimes going to have to make maybe choices that are better, that I know are better for me internally for maybe perhaps the goals and maybe there might be performance goals like for training yeah that was my out. next question um, leading into that actually yeah for coaches so, you mind mm-hmm. you mind no, go for it because yeah, yeah. I, I, I typed it down i don't want to forget <laughs> yeah. this question because this is more for the trainers now i've done my performance special certification through exos uh-huh. and it covered everything and the segment that it covered on nutrition and i think nasm and all of them they all have the nutrition aspect mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah we like it tends to cover the mental side of things. And we talked about that in one of our previous episodes, you know, the mental toughness. Mm-hmm. So it, it talks about that. And certifications, all certifications mostly have a mental part for, you know, for coaching for their clients. And when it comes to nutrition, it's always kind of labeled, mm-hmm. as you would say, is either good food, bad food, macros, all yeah. that, you know, counting. And you can, you know, they give you those tools. Right. The, the certification that I did was fuel your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like the picking the right sources of fuels, which what you were just talking about. Yeah, for performance. So, for performance. Mm-hmm. So from a coaching perspective, so they're using, so our trainers that listen to the show, what type rhetoric would yeah. be good? I don't want to say should, but would be good to use. Would, would be recommended. Yeah, would yeah. be recommended. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you know, I mean, because it always depends on the trainer. It depends mm-hmm. on the client. But what would, what's something that could be recommended to trainers so that they're not reinforcing eating mm-hmm. disorders they're yeah. not reinforcing triggers so to for speak. sure i mean this is now being talked about in the intuitive eating circles where a lot of people are intuitive eaters and also coaches and athletes and do need to fuel their body in a certain way and i am not trained in that per se so there are people who do specific trainings on that and i can share them maybe if you have show notes we could include oh, yeah, some of no, those 100%, so yeah, someone 100%. who comes to mind immediately is fiona sutherland she has a podcast called mindful dietitian shout out to her because we i learned so much from her but she does specific trainings for people in in sports and sports nutrition and how to a number one um recognize disordered thoughts and behaviors as they're coming up in clients and how to help your clients reach their goals without fueling fear-based behaviors. So that aside, just to like jump back to what Liam was saying with flexibility around food. Yeah, sometimes people are like, you know, this is one meal and fine, I'll go out with my friends and I'll have that cookie, but what about tomorrow? What if every meal I end up having a cookie? And for me, again, that is kind of Pre, preoccupation with food. What that means is food takes up a chunk of your brain and thinking. So someone with disordered thoughts and behaviors would say, okay, fine, fine. Let's say Ramadan is only 30 days and I'll eat at my grandma's. And But what about all these other times? What if I have a cookie today and tomorrow, tomorrow I go out and I have a cookie and the day after? How I would counter that and how I would work with that is, is say, check in with yourself. When you go out to eat, do you want the cookie? In the moment, 
You don't have to. No one's going to force you. And is there a craving, a hankering for cookie or not? Because it may be there, it may not. Someone may bring in a delicious looking cake and I check in with myself and apart from food rules, I actually right now would not have a slice of cake because I had a breakfast that was pretty sweet and that sweetness is still in my mouth. And so I'm really connected, learning to be really connected to my body and taste profile. And so I wouldn't have a slice of cake because I've given myself permission to have cake whenever I want. So I'm like, that cake looks really good. Not feeling it right now. On the other hand, I could also be an intuitive eater and even have a slice of cake even if I'm full. The difference would be I don't have guilt attached. I don't need to work it off. And then I also know that I may or may not have cake tomorrow. There, I don't have that piece of preoccupation where now I need to plan my meal for the next seven days and I need to not go out with people who are going to ruin my lifestyle choices. Does that kind of answer what you were asking? I feel like I've drifted yeah, so away it's from kind it. Of, you're saying that we, you're promoting being more flexible with your thinking, a little bit more kind of listening to your body a little bit more mm-hmm. and kind of giving yourself the choice. I guess it is. And kind Checking of going, in. Rather than saying, okay, like, can't have it. Like, well, you shouldn't go and do this. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of a balance between the two sides of thinking a little bit. Because mm-hmm. we also have to, we have to remember that actually there's like addictions that come with sugar, for example. Mm-hmm. And there's like physiological adaptations that happen when we have a lot of sugar mm-hmm. that make us want more sugar. And so like when we're kind of sometimes looking internally, we have to kind of go, okay, I really want that cook. But like, it's almost, do I need that cook? Mm-hmm. So sometimes because actually you yeah. also, also have to recognize that if you have one cookie, you're probably going to want another one because like that sweet taste is, mm-hmm. is very addictive to a lot of different personalities. And so I think we have to kind of be mindful of that as well. Mm-hmm. Like we can deal with the mental side of things and kind of be very open and trying to remain flexible mentally. Yeah. But a lot of the time the body then is kind of going, hey, like I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And actually sometimes the brain has to take over and go, stop being stupid like Mm -hmm. you've had lots of cookies (laughs) yeah you know i i do so much work around debunking the sugar addiction myth because the pleasure center in the brain that lights up when we have sugar is exactly the same spot that lights up when people get a hug it's the same spot that lights up when you see a super cute baby or a puppy it's the same you know it's the same voice change i know i have to do the, the puppy voice and baby voice but like it's the same pleasure center for drugs for sugar really for Exactly. We only okay. have one pleasure center in the brain. However, drugs can be addictive. We know that. Yes. You know, there's a lot of studies. Sugar addiction has only, the only research we're, we're like clutching to was done on rats. And it's very interesting research. I actually, like I have a whole story on it on Instagram. But what they did with these rats is number one. If you could one, send me the research, the article, I'd love to, the sure. article, the, the study, yeah. I'd love to plug it into the show notes. I mean, yeah. Or the, any resources. Sure. There's a lot of resources out debunking sugar addiction because like what they did with these rats is they, number one, they removed them from their natural habitat. I have a lot of questions around studies that remove creatures from their natural habitats because now their behavior has changed. But what they did is they gave them an option between water laced with drugs and water laced with sugar. And what they found is the rats keep going back to the sugar. So they're saying, whoa, look, sugar is more addictive than drugs. We can't say that because number one, the rat's primary drive is for survival. And sugar is going to give them that. It's going to keep them alive. Nutrition rather than necessarily something Exactly. Whereas with humans... Hmm. There's peer pressure. There's an awareness of pleasure. People may choose drugs 
because it feels good, well, because they're depressed, because, because, because. And so we can't, number one, we can't recreate that with humans because that would be highly unethical. We can't give people a choice between water laced with drugs and water laced with sugar. And literally the entire sugar addiction theory is based on this one study on rats. We can't recreate it with humans. What we know is actually humans cannot cut out sugar from their diet because all carbs turn into sugars and sugar is really, really important. Now, sugar can also be detrimental if I have way too much sugar. But what we're talking about is not this like have sugar all day, every day, have nothing but sugar, but give your self permission and learn about your taste preference and profile so that sugar doesn't become fear, like a food of a food that you fear or the enemy, because the more we fear something, the more it preoccupies us. You know, whenever someone says, I'm going to cut out chips, all they think about is chips. Yeah, and when they yeah. see those chips, they go through the entire bag or two bags or three bags because they've set some kind of rule where they told themselves, I am uncontrollable. I have an addictive personality. It's not, um, it's not a very empowering theory to humans. It really like reduces people to just acting on these drives. And for the most part around food, it's way more complex. Our drive for sugar, like if someone is wanting cookies every single day, my first question is, was there a time where you told yourself no cookies? Because if there was, you bet for a long time, like going forward, you're going to want cookies. The second question is, what do cookies represent to you? Maybe they remind you of grandma's house. I don't know. Maybe they remind you of like hanging out after school with your best friend. So there might be an emotional connection with cookies that we need to look into and say, why are you going to cookies for comfort? The third thing is, is your fear of cookies stemming from an idea that cookies might make me fat and therefore I do not want my body to change and therefore cookies are bad. So it gets way more complex. The best thing we can do is really teach people about the nutritional value of all foods. All foods can fit and it's all right. You're, you're all good. Don't worry about it. We had it happen you before. Guys, do, not, my, do not worry about my it. My alarm went off that's, and I made a face because I know they can't see me. No, that's so cool. That's now all, they know. It's all, you know it's all good. Don't worry. We, we've had a lot of situations where like a, a, yeah, a noise came we in. Gonna, this yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> this uh, is what makes it real life. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. That's, the, yeah. that's the beauty of it. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, one of our goals is to connect with the audience. Yeah. And we're all real people. We're, we're, we are very real people. We all guys. have real problems yeah. too. You know, like, I mean, when you were talking about the bag of chips, mm-hmm. I don't keep chips in my house. But when I go to my mother's house, and there's I'm, chips there, I'm finishing three bags of chips. Mm-hmm. And we're talking the big bags of Doritos, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know like, and it's, uh, you know, you're right. You're, and food that becomes off limits for whatever reason, like there's, there's a physical restriction and there's a mental restriction. Physical restriction is saying, I only eat X, Y, and Z, you know? This is the easy restriction that I can think of. So people who are saying, I can only have X number of macros. I can only, I don't do sugars. So they start restricting physically. They are more likely to binge on the food when they have access to it. Then there's the mental restriction. They are the people who think that some foods are bad. They still eat them. They may still have a burger almost like every night, but in their head, burger's bad. Made a terrible choice. I'll make a better choice tomorrow. That's a mental restriction. And you bet you're going to keep going back to that food with a sense of what if I never have it again? Or some kind of like something is going on mentally between you and the food. The other type of mental restriction actually has nothing to do with food. And that's the emotional restriction. So people who only allow themselves to experience one or two or three or four comfortable emotions. So some people are super comfortable with anger. They go there, they express anger very quickly. 
They lean into the anger, but they've restricted any emotion that is similar to like sadness. Anything that's uncomfortable to them, like joy. And this works like on either end of the spectrum. For some people, anger is an emotion they've restricted, they've cut off. The more we restrict in our lives, whether it's emotions or actual food, the more likely we're going to take it out. We're going to binge on something else or we're going to need that comfort elsewhere. So if someone restricts their emotion of joy, for mm-hmm. instance, I have a close family member that is never joyful. In fact, they're always stressed out. They're always angry. I mean, they just don't know how to express joy, love, and caring. Mm-hmm. And that's spilled over onto myself and some of my siblings. You know, it's, it's, it's just something that's in our family mm-hmm. that we've seen through generations. Now, you do drama therapy workshops. Yes. You yeah. Know? And this is, this is my segue into the drama therapy <laughs> workshops, you know. So how do people deal with that? Through drama therapy, like what, what would your workshop entail mm-hmm. for someone with a type of dis, you know, disorder that would seek you know, drama therapy as a solution? Depends on whether I'm running a workshop or seeing the person one-on-one. So a lot of people prefer to come to therapy one-on-one where they have several sessions, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, where they're working on their, their history. Uh, experiences they went through because obviously nobody wakes up one day and they're like, you know what? I'm not doing joy anymore. Like that doesn't happen. No one wakes up and says, I guess I'm never going to get angry again. But what if it stems like from your mother? Exactly. All so right. right where it comes can I just, from. Can I just call my mom? <laughs> I really Hypothetically. She, I really hope she doesn't listen to this. No, my mother, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I don't care. Yeah. You know, like I've grown up in an environment where expressing joy, and I mean, Haya could even attest to this, like I've really gotten better over the last few years since mm-hmm. the day's been bored, where I express joy, I express love, because it just wasn't there. Like my dad said, I love you to me once in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember it specifically right. probably to the day too, mm-hmm. you know, and same with my mother. You know, it's, it's, it's an emotion that we haven't really expressed in my family. So when they displace that and they only have that one outlet, how do you deal with something like that with when yeah. it's generational? Exactly. And that's exactly the point. It's usually generational, oh, wow. right? So people, like I said, people don't wake up one day and say, I'm not going to feel this emotion. They've gone through something that taught them that that emotion is not safe or the expression of that emotion. Because like, let's not pathologize someone who can't say I love you because maybe that's not part of their culture. Maybe their love language is hugging the person. Maybe they like to do sports with their kid. Whatever it is, there are different expressions of love. However, when when someone grows up unable to express or explore one emotion, we in therapy, what we do is we go back and see when was it not safe to explore that? What happened? What happened? What happened? And through exploring all these memories, uh, people make choices on how they want to behave in the future. They become more conscious. They're like, huh, I didn't realize I was doing that. Or I realized I just didn't know how to change it because this is who I am. And how I use drama therapy specifically, it really depends. I mean, I have some people who role play, like we, one of us will step into the role of a parent or a sibling or someone they needed to talk to and play that out, whether it's a real or imagined scenario. But most of the time, people don't want to do that level of embodied work. It's very hard and it's very yeah, emotional. That would, I mean, I would crack. Um, I would so crack. Like if I did that, I would just like thinking yeah. of that that that's yeah. that's some heavy stuff and right there the, and this is where this is why i love drama therapy it's cathartic 
like maybe you do get to express something you've never expressed. And also like I'm trained to do that. So I wouldn't recommend doing that just with the lay person, like someone on the street. Don't go ask someone, you know, will you be my mom for a second? Let's do this. Within drama therapy, like I said, we warm up. There's a way to get into a scene and out of a scene to make sure that the person is safe. And there are different modalities that we use. That said, that's not always the only choice. Some people like to write a play. Some people like to use metaphors. Some people like to write letters, write a song, bring in a song and talk about something. So I guess the difference between just regular counseling and drama therapy is I am willing to bring so many tools to the space and I am trained to bring those in. In a workshop, however, it's even cooler because like, let's say a group of people come in and they all identify that they have issues with a parent. Like maybe maybe that's how I advertise a group, like drama therapy for people who are resolving emotions toward family members. The cool thing is, it's not going to be about like you, Mehdi, or me, Fatma. It can be about we can create a fictional character that we all relate to and workshop that scene. And so it gives people a little distance so they're not getting like what you said earlier, like, oh my gosh, I would crack if I did that. So some people need the distance. So if we create a character who lives in a different country, who's going through something similar but different, it's a little easier to gain empathy and understanding and change without feeling like I'm swept up in the emotion. So that's how drama therapy works, especially around resolving and expressing emotions. Wow. I'd love to attend your next workshop. I would love all, to have you guys. Honestly, can we? Would you want we to We should do one for it? like athletes. Yeah, right. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> Liam, we you can, look a little scared we, now. <laughs> yeah, he does. I've never seen that face on him before. I was like, <laughs> really? You're like, give me a workout any day. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the emotional workouts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's wow, some heavy stuff, man. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. It's, it is. We, we are trying to do as many things as I, when our guests come on, yeah. If, if they're specialists in things that we're, we're not very good at, or even anything, to be honest, yeah. which we, we are trying to experience more. And actually, like, I think we're massively trying to take use this as a, this podcast and this show as an opportunity to, to learn and grow ourselves as well. Yeah. And I know for me, like personally, this is something that I've never explored before. How big are the groups usually? Depends. Of- like if you were to do something for athletes. Yeah, maybe we you, should. I mean, we, maybe we could do something for athletes. And I just, would you love know, that. That would be a lot of fun because the characters are a bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not helping you with this. One. <laughs> oh, you gotta, you gotta, that's all you, baby. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they all kind of walk around, you know, with their head up a little higher than others, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you agree? Yeah, to be fair. To be, okay. to be, to be, to be fair. But this, is, but this is in their house, in the gym. Like, it is. I mean, no, no, but, but I'm not, I'm not knocking on their them. space. But they, yeah. a lot of personal trainers sometimes don't see their own faults. True. Because yeah. they already see themselves as in a, you know, as a, a Spartan, so to speak. You know, as an elite athlete that is a trainer, that has the bod, that has everything, that has all these things. So they don't really see mm-hmm. the mental side of it sometimes. And I think it would be really good. For some of the elite athletes, I'd love to just sit there and observe. I'm not an elite <laughs> no, no, you, you, you're not <laughs> you're saying that you want to be involved in it and then go and throw in other people no, in I'll there. Ju- I'll, fo- like, I'll film you're it. In yeah, it. no, I have rules about you're like it, no witnesses. Everybody in the play space is participating. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. you're going to be in it. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely jump in it. Come throw out there and then not be in it. I'll definitely jump in that. But yeah. all right, so switching gears a little bit. Switching gears. Switching let's gears. Do it. You know, let's. What about? Let's talk about some of the most common misconceptions about eating disorders, and you know, some of the rhetoric that sh- could be used. I don't want to say should again. Caught mm-hmm. myself there. That could be used on, especially social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, social media to me now it's before we only had access to magazines. That showed us the chiseled six pack, the yeah. people saying, 
you should eat like this. This is how you should do things. Don't be, you know, don't eat crap. Don't do mm-hmm. this. You know, there's a lot of don'ts and do's. Mm-hmm. So how does that fall into play for you? Because you do a lot of following your social media. I love the content that you put on there because it's so real. And it's like, I wish people talked about this stuff more mm-hmm. rather than the, the shoulds, the shouldn'ts. And you have to look a certain way. Yeah. So it's a radical shift. I mean, I do want to put it out there that I was not always here in the space that I'm practicing from. I was just like everybody caught up in diet culture. I had definitely had like some unspoken rules in my head where I'm like, you know, if I'm going to get a good workout in, it better, you know, better go hard because, you know, maybe the next two days I'm going to be traveling. So this is going to be a good workout. I used to Instagram my food because it was clean because it took a lot of unlearning, guys. Like I didn't start this play right here. I started actually in grad school. I didn't think I was going to work with people with eating disorders. I didn't really have a population in mind. I just liked drama therapy and was super excited about the modality. But I took a workshop on eating disorders and I was really intrigued because for the first time ever, I learned that what many people in my life do is actually problematic for them, for me, for society at large. It was like almost like putting on a new, like new glasses and seeing the world differently and thinking, okay, so I knew that when people are emaciated or, you know, they appear to be really struggling, then maybe they have a mental health issue. But I didn't know about the range of eating disorders and I didn't know about movements, social justice movements like health at every size. And so I do want to preface all of this by saying there was a huge learning curve for me. And as I learned and as I seeped myself in this like what we call a non-diet approach or intuitive eating approach, I thought it was really important to put the message out there. So my Instagram account is both just me, my life, sharing, wanting to connect, wanting connection. Because I think this is what social media boils down to right at the bottom is we are seeking connection. There's no other way around it. So I use Instagram for that. I love the social connection. I love the humanity behind it. But I also use it as a psychoeducation platform. What I like to see now on social media are accounts kind of similar to mine. I like my friends' accounts. I like funny cat and, you know, puppy accounts that put pictures of funny, you know, funny videos of animals. I like creative accounts that put art, but I've had to detox, to use a diety word, detox my social media account from people who post before and after pictures, people who are obsessed with the way they look, people who are posting meal after meal with the sense of high, showing us that they are better, that they're making better choices, even though they don't mean to do that. But I don't find that to be a good thing for me to follow. And so when it comes to social media, I do caution a lot of my clients to notice how different accounts make them feel. Are there accounts that you're subconsciously comparing yourself to? That's probably not a good thing. You know, comparison steals joy. And are there accounts that make you feel bad about yourself? Are there accounts that make you feel angry? Are there accounts that make you leave like something on on the table and not touch it because somebody influenced you because someone said that's not good? Or did you go out, did you rush out and buy something that you normally wouldn't buy that you don't truly, when you check in with yourself, you don't actually enjoy? Did you only go make that purchase because it was on social media? And so that's that's my little like spiel on social media. Use it wisely, use it in a way that feels good for yourself. And then also my challenge is to diversify your social media. So notice, are you following people who mostly look like you, who mostly think like you? And what would it be like to open that a little bit? And so 
through health at every size, through intuitive eating, I learned that there's a lot of fat activists. There are a lot of coaches who don't have the fit look um, that I was previously seeking or thought that's what a athlete looks like or that's what a coach looks like. So now I'm aware of body and size diversity. I try to follow people of different abilities, of different races, different socioeconomic um, backgrounds and with awareness, with a desire and a curiosity to learn because they're saying, look, this is my life experience. And the best thing we can do is approach it from a place of curiosity and wanting to learn and realizing that the world doesn't revolve around us and people who look like us. Wow. Wow. So with the accounts that you follow, because mm-hmm. you did say at the beginning of that uh, conversation that you said that actually you follow more accounts that are like yours. Yes. So is it possible that you're following accounts that are like yours, but just with people who are different ethnicities, races? Because I think everyone kind of follows accounts that are like, like theirs and they, they have yeah. a mindset that they want to maybe achieve or things that they're interested mm-hmm. in. Like, I think we have to be quite careful about saying, not saying that everyone's account choices are bad, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, it's because there's some, obviously, there's going to be some people who are going to be looking inwards and going, okay, like, what accounts do I follow? Oh, that account's bad. I shouldn't follow that one. When actually, yeah. I think that kind of compounds the thing that actually you're trying to help, if that makes yeah. sense. We have to take it case by case, I mm-hmm. guess. Of course. And it's really, really important, especially with something so sensitive as eating disorders and yeah. mental health. And actually, like, especially with social media, like social media is so dangerous in that way it because is. it's, no, it's everything is. to anyone. Yeah. And, uh, and you can access so many different things. Mm-hmm. But I think I see a lot of the positive things and negative, but a lot of the positive things that like following an account that like is very aspirational to you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like maybe a good account might be like the Rocks account, for example. Like he does a lot of amazing things, but he's in like amazing shape. Like he's mm-hmm. like some people might not think he's in amazing shape, but some people might think he's in amazing shape. And he's very aspirational to people who, uh, whether even if they're business minded, whether they're athletically minded, performance minded. Like he's uh, an older guy. I think he's like fifty four, something mm-hmm. like that. So like I mean, for older guys, like he's like okay, like he's pretty cool. But is it bad that they follow him because yeah. they're because they're kind of aspirational, but they're never right. going to look like him, never going to be have the money that he has, never going to have the celebrity right. status, right. the family, the dogs, everything, all like that. Is it bad or is it healthy? Yeah. So again, like I'm not looking at it from good or bad because there's yeah. the labeling. Again, yeah. I look at it from what is it doing for my mental health? If I'm looking at The Rock and every time I see his account, I think, oh God, I must not eat again or... I need to add two more hours at the gym. That's probably not great for my mental mental health, right? I'm putting myself down and I'm comparing. However, if I can follow someone like The Rock and say, "Huh, look, he was so charitable." But That's a good at what reminder. Point does, like saying that you're not going to spend that extra time or effort at the gym become something that's detrimental to you? Because actually, yeah. sometimes some people need to kick up the ass and go. You need to go and work harder at what you're doing mm-hmm. because, like, you're not working harder enough, hard enough to get to where you say that you want to be. Yeah. And if those people are saying, I understand there's a, a case by case example of actually maybe that person says they want to be somewhere, but like it's not healthy for them to try to attain that goal. Mm-hmm. But also, like, a lot of these accounts, and I think a lot of the reasons why people become personal trainers or coaches, for example, is to help motivate other people. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a line where that yeah. becomes unhealthy or that person becomes actually demotivational to people in some of the yeah. wording that they use and everything like that. But I think we have to also take a perspective that they all generally start out with a view to try to help people. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's not even a line. It's not like I'm going to know that I've crossed something and there's going to be sirens going off. 
it's a slippery slope. The moment I start, my motivation stems from wanting to look a certain way. That's a red flag for me. That says something about me is not happy with who I am as a human, as a person. And so I think having movement-based goals is great because if movement makes someone feel happy, then great. Do they need the look that goes with it? That's the red flag for me. Why do we use terms like body goals? Like, what is that? That is entirely against the concept of body diversity. And with body diversity, it comes from a place of social justice. So think about racism. You can't pick and choose. You can't be like, hey, I'm not racist or I don't have any racist beliefs, but I don't think that people from race A are smart enough to occupy such jobs. You can't, like, that's racist thinking. So the same thing comes into play with size diversity and an acceptance of all people, people are going to look different. The moment I say we need to set goals, you know, when, when it comes to size and body diversity, we can't say I accept people of all sizes. I'm a, I'm a tolerant person and I'm accepting, but I think you five people need to change the way you look, or I will support you when you want to change the way you look. I get curious when people want to change their body because that's not That has nothing to do with how they're going to sleep at night, how they look. If they go on a walk and they sleep better, great. If they lift heavy and they sleep better and their mind is clearer, great. But literally their their six pack or their legs or their shoulders will not improve their mental health other than it will give them a real boost when they get compliments. And that's actually lights up the same pleasure center we spoke about earlier. So would you agree or disagree that more attractive people in the social mindset are more successful or not? Oh, I don't know. I think I think as a culture as a whole, we definitely idolize and elevate people who are thinner and more attractive. And that's the entire, like this entire diet culture hinges on that because, well, then if people who are who are portrayed as successful in the media all look a certain way, you bet everyone's running after that because I'm going to think that well, if I have that body, I'm also going to land that relationship. I'm also going to do better at my job. I'm also going to feel good because I can wear better clothes that are my size. That most clothes manufacturers actually only design clothes in certain smaller sizes, even workout clothes. And and there is weight stigma. Weight stigma is having these preconceived notions that people in larger bodies may be lazy, may not be smart enough. And the more we chase this thin ideal, this look that we attribute to success, the more we're like, oh, you guys are not good enough. What about the thought of like discipline? Mm. So like obviously, like if someone has abs, like has great biceps, whatever it is, like physically, if they're kind of more appealing in Mm -hmm. the social mindset, like it kind of gives off an aura of discipline. Yeah, right? yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't there be a, wouldn't there be a lot that contributes to that? I mean, if you look but at it's, genetics it's, it's, and it's, you look at an, a lot of different things, it's an things. outward kind of ad- advertisement of your discipline. Yeah, most most yes. trainers. If, yeah. if the person didn't say anything, then you would kind of assume, okay, like yeah. that person is disciplined exactly. just from the way that they look. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, if if you were walking, say, for example, into a job interview, and yes. like you look, you kind of have a nice suit, like you obviously in great shape. In the social mindset, again, of course, like with that, not that that's given off cues, mm-hmm. nonverbal cues that you are maybe more disciplined, and when you have something in your mind, then you're more yes. likely to stick to it. But you can flip that around too, from an HR perspective. You can definitely flip it around, saying, "Okay, well, I have this this guy coming into my office, or this guy coming into the interview. He's in great shape. 
is that his number one priority over his job? Yeah, for sure. You could definitely flip it oh, around yeah, definitely. from an HR but, perspective. Yeah, but what, what you're saying has been studied. And yes, proven that people assume that someone has more discipline when they look a certain way and they're going to do better at the job. That's not actually true. That's called discrimination. It's like the same as when a male and female walk into a job interview. Yeah. Chances are the man is going to be seen as assertive. He's probably going to get a better job offer. He's going to be seen as the person who can make decisions barely based on his gender. Not necessarily. It, it would if the person, if that guy walked in slouching and kind of again nonverbal cues. Of course, I think um, like because discrimination is tough because actually there's obviously there's, discrimination is a thing, and I definitely agree that it is mm-hmm. a thing. But as someone who is walking in, and you could kind of say it's judging, but everyone judges on day to day basis whether you walk in up to someone and. You offer your hand out and they don't go to shake your hand or something like that. Obviously, you're going to say, actually, like, why are you being a dick? Yeah. Like, and so you're going to assume that person's like not very nice just because they didn't give you a verbal or non-verbal cue yeah. that actually that they're a respectable person with nothing to hide. Yeah. So you, you immediately go into discriminate against that person. Yes. But actually, is it in a bad way or a good way? Because actually you're making, you're only reading the cues that are being given mm-hmm. to you. And I think that's really important yeah. in, a, in a job interview or in any kind of case where we're interacting with someone. Because I think it's very the same as a job yeah. interview. You're trying to understand someone in a short space of time as much as possible about a person so that you can understand, okay, where's this person coming from? Mm-hmm. Trying to be as empathetic as possible with that person and understand, okay, are they going to be useful for what they're coming to me for? Or like this interaction, right. whatever it might be. Yeah. So like you're just reading those nonverbal cues as best possible based on Mm -hmm. the information that you're being given. And so like I know a lot of the time, actually, if you're not, if you walk into a job interview for Goldman Sachs or somewhere like in Wall Street or anything and you walk in and you're not wearing a suit and you're wearing like dirty trainers and everything, they're going to go the hell are you even yeah, doing? Yeah, you're, right? you're not getting a job. And like, that's not nothing to do with their actual with physical bias. appearance, yeah. but like with their, their choice of clothing. Yes. And yeah. so actually then, like, it's discrimination still, but is that in, uh, incorrect or not? It's just, it's still discrimination yeah. in yeah. my eyes, but yeah, that's just because point. of their physical appearance, actually, like, I would be, I would say that the person is entitled to, yeah. to be discriminatory because it's almost yeah. like the other person is saying that I don't respect you enough to dress how everyone else has dressed at, at this job interview. I'm not going to play by the rules. Yes. And so actually, like, I'm going to do, I'm going to turn up. Why don't you take me from me being me? And I'm going to do a great job for you, but I just don't want to turn up and play by the rules. Mm-hmm. Like, is that's not necessarily yeah. fair to the company or to the person who's making the decision. So discrimination so. and implicit bias are based on things that we cannot control. For example, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, weight, size, ability. Things that are out of my control. I was born in a larger body or I was born with a certain skin color or even religion. You know, if I choose to embrace a religion or I was born into it and then someone treats me a certain way, that's discrimination. And that's their implicit bias kicking in and saying, oh, what I know about Muslims, they don't commit to work. Well, that's, you know. Like you don't you don't have any evidence. However, if I walk into a job interview and I've made the choice to not look the part, then they're not discriminating against me. What they're doing is saying you may not be a good fit for the job. Uh, I think uh, I understand that fully. I think I'm glad that you clarified that kind of the the implicit bias and discrimination. But my argument 
probably is a biased argument as a personal trainer <laughs> would be that that person is not necessarily making the choice to go to the gym. Yeah. Like make their appearance maybe more appealing to the mm-hmm. interviewer and maybe make better nutrition choices for themselves, for their own health, and actually to show outwardly and give nonverbal cues that they are of a certain way that is going to help them achieve what they want to achieve. It's mm-hmm. not for anyone else, like yeah. because they, they're the ones walking into the job interview to use that use that same example. They're saying that they want to be taken for the job. Mm-hmm. And so actually, but then they're making choices that are going to stop them or kind of yeah. pull them back a little bit from other people who have made that choice to try and be more proactive with, again, like we could use playing by the rules, but kind of like, unfortunately, those are the rules that exist in society. And actually, like, yeah. you can't just turn up for something without learning about it. You can't have, you can't, like, a lot yeah. of the time you have to have a degree in something that you want to go and have. So mm-hmm. it's like, kind of, those are choices that people make. And if someone consistently chooses a cookie instead of like something that maybe is a, a, a healthier option for them or maybe is going to reduce their fat, I'm not saying good or bad. I'm mm-hmm. trying to be better at that. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I'm watching. Yeah, so, <laughs> You're yeah. doing great. So if someone is, is making those different <laughs> yeah. choices, yeah. then actually like those, again, those, those choices are going to one choice or over a period of time, mm-hmm. more going more towards the cookie, for example, is going to like, reduce their chances at getting to where they want to go. Yeah. And so I think like personal trainers, and again, I think it really has to be case by case, but personal trainers and coaches are trying to help people to achieve as best possible those different mm-hmm. opportunities that they want yeah. to achieve. Not necessarily just like to have abs, but yeah. just to feel more comfortable within their body by saying actually, hey, I'm not comfortable in my body. And yeah. I'm not sure personally whether I think that's a bad thing or not. This has been my favorite interview so far. Sorry, keep going, man. Keep going. Yeah. I'm with you. Like, I'm not stopping anything right now. We're creeping up on the hour, 11-minute mark. Yeah, so, wow. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, no. I can't remember where it was, but I think I, I just I think I, I was I like, we're personal trainers yeah. and coaches. They're, they're, they're doing their best. And I feel like in the first half of our conversation, we were kind of a very um, kind of trying to move away from that whole idea of like, saying that, mm-hmm okay, what you, you don't want to put a label on thinking that, okay, like I'm, I'm bad if I don't go to the gym or I should be going to the gym. Like, mm-hmm. I, like, but actually we're, we're taking away from the fact that some people really want to mm-hmm. um, and some people want to change their life and they realize that being 140 kilos is doing absolutely nothing for them health-wise, comfortability-wise, being able to get out of bed-wise, being able to run around at the playground with their kids-wise, being able to like look forward to a long and healthy life, like without maybe kind of the risk of diabetes or kind of like disorders that or diseases that are associated with being like a a larger individual. Mm -hmm. And so like if they're kind of recognizing all of that, I just want to make sure that you're not kind of saying that to think that way and then be like, hey, it's okay though, I'm making that choice like Mm -hmm. to be okay with it. Like that's not always okay. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, actually, like you're saying, you, like you need to look inwardly and say, "I'm going to affect other people in my family by me just going, hey, I'm I'm cool with that." But mm-hmm. some people are. I mean, I I have one of my good friends who is overweight, smokes, and he's like, "Dude, this is how I choose to live. This this is yeah, me." Yeah, that's not that's you know, not like, a bad I, thing. He's like, it's, "I don't want to put people down for thinking that actually, like, I want I, those people who are in a situation physically like that." But then say, actually, I want to change. I want to get better at yeah. it. Yeah. Like, and it's not, it's saying that that 
want to change is not a bad thing. But I think it goes so, back to what you were saying earlier when we look at social media. It's like, what is, what's, what's your derived goal from it all? What's your derived mm-hmm. takeaway from yeah. everything? It's like when people listen to this podcast, what's your takeaway? Yeah. What's your real takeaway from mm-hmm. this? Do you want to change the way you think about eating disorders or do you want to use that to fuel your fire to go off and find a new outlet? So yeah. to speak. I guess, so. yeah, you're really right. It's, it's kind of saying, is it because you want to be happy and healthy or is it because you want to have six pack apps? Because mm-hmm. they're two different things. Yeah. And you can be happy and healthy at any size. Yeah. At For any sure. Size. Yeah. No, yeah. And this is 100%, like you can what be, I keep yeah. going back to because what we know about a lot of illnesses like cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, mortality rates, it's correlated to size. It's not caused by size, meaning. Yes, they may be occurring at the same time. Someone in a larger body may have diabetes or have heart issues. And I can name plenty of people in smaller bodies who have diabetes and who have heart issues. So is it caused by weight gain? We actually don't think so. It's correlated. However, the message has been for a very long time that the leading cause of death is higher weight. We like we need to look at the evidence. And there's a lot of resources I can share those with you guys as well that unpack evidence that is non-weight inclusive. But I just want to touch on, you said a lot of really cool things that I'm like, ah, I need to come back and and visit them. You said something about, you know, this, this job interview. And I think we shouldn't have to play by this fat phobic society. So clearly this is fat phobia at play. If somebody's going to make an assumption that because I'm in a larger body, I'm not going to be good at my job or I don't have willpower. That's a system that needs to be changed, just like racism is a system we're constantly bumping up against. We're not saying in order to get the job, try to look less like race A. We're saying you were born in race A. Own it. This is who you are. You can't change that. And so sometimes it has nothing to do with willpower. People are going to be of many different sizes for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Genetics, environmental, access to wealth and food jobs. Certain people have jobs where they can't go to the gym. They don't have the time. They're shuffling between two or three jobs. Some people have mental issues that make working out really, really difficult. Some people have disabilities that make moving really hard. They don't have access to wheelchairs or they don't have access to a a workout space that is accessible and friendly. So when it comes to size diversity, I think instead of saying, how can I make my client look good in order to land a job? I would make sure my client is not discriminating against people who look different. That our worth as human beings is not tied to the way we look, to our discipline around food or workouts. Our worth as human beings is measured by our behavior toward ourselves and others. So if I am constantly going out and hurting people or gossiping or you know, taking out my rage on people and I look amazing and I land that job because I look like I have discipline, I'm going to be a terrible team player. And someone else who may have not looked the part might have done better. We don't know because we, we based our their worthiness on the way they look. It's sad because society is turning into that. It's really sad yeah. because it really is turning into that where we're basing our judgments on the way some people look. I think it doesn't it's turn into it. I th- it, I is. it. It is. It like, is. Yeah. I think but it always when you look been. at China, I mean, China's, I think they're starting to initiate this where it's a social credit system based mm-hmm. on how you interact with people and based on the things that you do with people. Yeah. Imagine if that actually took place in Kuwait mm-hmm. where you were given credit on how you interact with someone. So yeah. if, you're, if, if you're a jerk to someone in traffic and you know you flip them the bird, 
and you're like minus 10 credit. Yeah. People aren't going to want to associate with you. Right. But when we look at social media nowadays, I mean, these, these influencers all over the world, you don't see any, a lot of, or you don't see a lot of plus size people. Mm-hmm. You usually see a lot of influencers that are well done up. Yeah. That go through the plastic surgery, that go through all of these things just so that they gain that social credit. Our bodies is... become our business cards. Exactly. I just read exactly. that somewhere yeah, so and I'm going to have to credit that because it's so true. Yeah. Especially when it comes to athletes. Which is sad. It's so sad. Athletes, dietitians, even like CEOs. Is it sad though? Like that's just the way it, it is. It is though. But I, it's, it's, it's sad that that's the way. Earlier, I, I think it's sad that it has to be that way. But also, like as I said about nonverbal cues, like like they're, you're just you're giving out information constantly, and it's the yeah. same thing that comes out of your mouth. Like we on Instagram, for example, you see a picture of someone. Okay, most of the time you don't read what they say underneath. Like it could be like a great example might be that a girl who's like half naked. And then she puts like a quote from someone extremely intelligent underneath. Mm-hmm. Like that might be like the words underneath might be exactly what she's thinking and the way that her brain operates. But actually, everyone's looking at the picture. Yeah, ninety percent of guys are, are looking yeah. at the picture. Yeah. And so actually, like she's getting likes and likes and likes and likes because of the picture. But she shouldn't have to not put that quote underneath just because she's put the the picture, and she shouldn't have to put the picture just because she's put mm-hmm. that quote underneath. Mm-hmm. Like so, she's actually tried to show both sides maybe of her personality. But everyone's then discriminating against her because they think that she's only given like the booty picture, for example. Right. And like, so, it's not, it's sad that that's the way it is, but unfortunately, that's just the way it is. It, like, a body is a business card because the information that we're given out about ourselves. Look, and it I, could be completely yeah. misinformation because number one, you could have inherited genes yeah, that yeah, make you true, live, true, yeah. make it very easy for you to be in a smaller body. Yeah. Maybe you have access to wealth where you can hire a personal trainer and not be disordered. That's true. And yeah. Would this not be yeah. a case about or maybe I- you just IQ have the as time. well? Yeah. Maybe you just have the time. Maybe you have the time. IQ, IQ is the same though. Like you, you're born with a certain IQ. And that, yes, you can. I understand you can make it better and everything yeah. like that. And you can also make it worse. Yeah. But um, no, but, no one kind of says that we're discriminating against IQ. No one's going to put um, someone with an IQ of 30 like, as a CEO of a, a FTSE 100 company, for example. Because they're going to be like, actually, I don't trust you because you only have an IQ of 30. Like you may say, like, actually, like, I think you're stupid. So they're discriminating against that person because of that. And that's their business card. But it doesn't really matter about the hate. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You're not going to go to a trainer that's out of shape. I mean, let's be but realistic. But I agree with you. Yeah. It, shouldn't, it shouldn't be in most older trainers. Like, I mean, if you have an older coach that's in yeah. his 50s, you know, 60s, that has been around, you know, the circle who's been at that heightened Olympic yeah. level, he's not going to be in shape. Yeah. But he will and, work. And he will work. We need this to ask why. Example. Yeah, that's a good example. Because baseball players, I, yeah. I take it back to baseball. I mean, I've always been a fan. And when you look at the managers after they're done playing, you know, they'll retire at like 34, 35. And then when they come back five years later as a manager, they are not in shape. They are and, far uh, from it. And you know, we say shape, but what we're really getting at is their body, body. looks body off. Looks. It doesn't adhere to certain guidelines and why they played a sport to an extreme they were very hyper vigilant about their relationship with food and exercise and then they were like oh, i can breathe now yeah and they, and they go from one extreme to, to the extreme, extreme yeah other so and because the body has been like restricted for so long that said i don't think trainers should be evaluated on how they look because i can have an excellent trainer who knows their form who motivates me who helps me reach whatever goals I need to reach. And then maybe they don't look the part, whatever this part, you know, quote unquote, is. Because I'm trying to do 
much better about evaluating someone based on their qualifications and not on their body. Yeah, you're right. And it's sad because there are some good dietitians, for instance, that they just don't have the time. They just right. don't. Some people right. just don't have the yeah. time. Or the desire. Yeah. Like, like they're not we, required. Would we argue that at least the body would be like, say, for example, it would contribute to their qualifications? How? In an experienced way. Mm, how? Tell me. And so, for example, um, like a bodybuilder preparing for a show. Mm-hmm. And they have to mentally go through like maybe like eight weeks of hard dieting to look a certain way. So they have a performance goal. And then they have a week or so of like high and low water intake, sodium intake and everything like that. For that person, for the coat taking mm-hmm. the athlete through that, for them to actually have been through it personally before. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily be at the time and they don't have to yeah. be like super shredded or anything like that. But to have been through it before makes them a better coach. Because they can give more of an experience idea. Yeah. Same as someone who's been a weightlifter. Like if you've had a coach for weightlifting who's actually, say for example, stepped on stage and done the performance, gone through the whole idea of going to the Olympics and actually yeah. what to expect at the Olympics and being in amazing shape. If you have a coach who hasn't done that before, then like you're missing out on a lot of things from the mental side of things, mental preparation and, and physical preparation and understanding what the body is going through internally. Mm-hmm. Because actually, if you haven't done that at all before, you almost have no idea how it feels inside and mentally to to go through that. Mm-hmm. So how can you as effectively take an, an athlete or a client or a member like through that? Mm-hmm. So like my argument is not that it should be the be all and end all by no means. Like a lot of the time and in experience, like the best looking personal trainers are the, actually the ones who care least about other people. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, because you, <laughs> like you have to be, that. you yeah, have yeah. to be relatively yep. sac. You have to yeah. sacrifice personal mm-hmm. relationships sure. a lot of time to look that good, and to or not look good, but to be to that, maintain. yeah, to be to maintain that kind of like amazingly lean shape and everything like that. But also, like you, if you've got someone who's really out of shape, then you're like actually like that advice that you're giving me, like, and at a time, like, how can I kind of fully believe that you're really mm-hmm. giving that advice from a good place, like? I don't think it should be by any means like one or the other. I just think that it should be, I know there's a big backlash against like people thinking that you should look a certain way. But also, as I said, those nonverbal cues that you're giving out is you're basically yeah. saying, I have the experience that's shown me like that I can maintain this, like living happy mm-hmm. and, happily and healthily or anything like that, or achieving this performance goal that you say that you want to achieve. And it's a, it is part of your business card in a good way as well as a bad way. But just as much as a qualification is in strength and conditioning or yoga or Zumba or whatever it might be, an understanding like on paper about how that athlete should feel, but then massively adds to it the mm-hmm. experience of actually yeah. being there, how they feel. And people could practice what they preach and still not look a certain way. I think that's what the underlying issue for me is people can be certified yoga instructors or power lifters and still not choose to change and manipulate their body to look a certain way. Now, maybe that won't jive with everyone. Maybe some people, especially you're talking about bodybuilding and performance athletes and uh, Olympic weightlifting. I don't know much about that world, but I would say that probably requires very specific training with nutritionists. But I'm talking about like the layperson who wants to exercise to feel good, knows that when they move, they sleep better. Or when they swim, they have more energy at work. And so when it comes from a place of moving away from body manipulation and trying to like make my body look a way that it may not ever want to look, then I can work with 
anybody. Why does their shape or size affect how I feel about the exercise? As long as they know what they're doing. Like, you know, I always say this to people, like when you look for a doctor, do you only look for a doctor who's gone through the exact same thing you're going through? Like when people find an oncologist, they're not looking for a doctor who's just been through cancer. Yeah. They, what the, their knowledge is based on paper, theory, and practice. And so is the knowledge of athletes who don't look apart. They've still got the paper, the theory, and they're practicing. They don't, just don't choose or cannot or don't want to manipulate their body for whatever to, reason. To be fair, there have been coaches, professional coaches, that have never picked up a ball in their lives or have never mm-hmm. played the game, but they were just extremely brilliant at the tactics that were involved. And yeah. I mean, American football could be used as an example. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have some geniuses that go into that and they're just great like tactical, tactical yeah. coaches. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, they're amazing at drawing up plays and coming up with playbooks. And you've seen that in a lot of sports. Actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's sometimes you need that experience and I agree with you. But other times, sometimes pe- the most creative ideas are going to come from the guys who have never done it before. Like, well, okay, mm-hmm. well, why didn't you shoot a basketball this way? You know, like the Golden State Warriors, when they use the mental, the mental tactics, you know, they, they used, oh, I'm drawing a blank here, transcranial stimulation. You know, I think yeah. it was the Golden State Warriors that used transcranial stimulation for their practicing, which is, you know, basically zapping your brain, the cerebral cortex, before you go and practice so that you can, you know, better practice that skill. And I'll put that in the show notes and I'll definitely refine that because I... No, I, no, I, yeah. You know what? I, I'm, There's I'm a couple pretty, of different companies that yeah, do similar I, I, products. I, I own the Halo. Like, yeah. I have the Halo. Yeah. It does, like, it feels, it's weird. It feels like someone's tickling hmm. your head. But And I know we didn't get a chance to circle around to um, diet culture because I threw that word out, but maybe we can also include that in the show notes. Oh, yeah, definitely. A good link to that would be Christy Harrison who writes really succinctly and clearly on that topic. Okay. All right, awesome. I mean, I think this is a fully packed. I know. We could talk for hours. This is is definitely, I think it's really enlightening. And I love having this new perspective on. I think it's, I mean, I I was blown away by a lot of the information and some of the things that I do personally, Mm -hmm. you know, that could be bettered. And I just, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this show. I hope so. I really hope so. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I can be found on Instagram, Drama Therapy Kuwait. And I do post a lot about people's relationships with food and their bodies and trying to offer a more gentler perspective than the one out there right now. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you, and join us next time.